Hello and welcome to the Four Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusak. And in this episode, my guest is Mike Davis, the Executive Director of the United States Golf Association. In the podcast you're about to hear, Mike and I discuss how the USGA is operating remotely during the COVID-19 pandemic, instead of having its employees work in its Far Hill, New Jersey headquarters. We also talk at length about how the pandemic has affected the country's national championships, which includes the cancellation of qualifying events for the U.S. Amateur, the U.S. Women's Amateur, the U.S. Open, and the U.S. Women's Open. And finally, Mike also explain how the loss of revenue from a smaller U.S. Open at Wingfoot may or may not affect the programs the USGA operates. Plus, we talked about a whole lot more. Get stronger, hit longer, and end pain with Golf Forever. Created by Justin Leonard and co-author of the Younger Next Year Backbook, Dr. Jeremy James, Golf Forever is the take-anywhere online golf fitness program that helps you build a body primed for golf. It's simple, safe, and it works. At home, in the gym, on the golf course, Golf Forever's easy-to-follow exercises, warm-up routines, and course management videos will help you play your best pain-free. Sign up today at GolfForever.com and use promo code GOLFWEEK for a free 14-day trial. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome into the 4Press Podcast the 1982 Pennsylvania State Junior Champion, as well as the Executive Director of the USGA, Mr. Mike Davis. Mike, welcome to the 4Press. How are you doing? Dave, it's great to be with you. I chuckle when you say that because I am so many years away from being a a competent, uh, competitive golfer, but uh, it's nice to hear that occasionally. Well, I, on occasion, I can tell my kids the only golf tournament that I've ever won was the first one I ever entered, which was the 1983 Drumlin's Country Club Boys 13 and Under. And uh, that that trophy is right over there, about seven feet away on a pedestal. And um, the Masters Championship and the U.S. Open trophy have a spot waiting for them, should that ever happen, but I'm not holding my breath that uh, that that title is going to where where are you right now and uh, how are you and your family doing right now? We are doing great. My wife and I are actually visiting my sister and her husband on their beach house on the Outer Banks, and so um, you know, in this world we live in with COVID, um, as long as I've got a, a computer and good internet service, I, I'm a, actually able to stay uh, very uh, productive. So we have roughly 300 full-time staff. Um, I would say about 75% of them are in our New Jersey headquarters. The others are throughout the country, like you said. We've got green section agronomists spread out through the country. We've got people working on championships like the men's and women's U.S. Opens that are headquartered where those stay. We, we've got a pretty good office in Pinehurst, North Carolina, where a lot of the U.S. Open team is housed uh, year-round. And you know what's interesting about COVID is we had been talking for the last couple of years as a team of how can we give a little bit more flexibility to staff just in this the world we live in to, to make it maybe a little more convenient, productive. And what COVID has actually done is push that along certainly at a faster rate than we thought. And we, we actually a couple of weeks ago did a survey of our staff just to say, how are you doing? Um, you know, we, we haven't furloughed anybody. There hasn't been a need. Um, 
you know, I won't say every single one of those 300 people are as busy as normal, but some are, you know, job as usual, just happen to be working out of the home. Some are um, exceptionally busy, particularly those working in championships. But so what we found in that survey is that um, people by and large were actually in some ways more productive being home. They, they, they didn't have to commute to work. Um, there was more quiet time for them to focus, but at the same time, it seemed like across the board, there was a feeling like, you know what, I do want to be in the office some, I miss the collaboration with the fellow staff members. And so it, it's been a good test. And, and I would say by and large, I, as I look back to mid-March now, I am incredibly impressed with how well our organization is actually run. Uh, how good the communication is, both internally and externally. So uh, it's been good. And, you know, obviously we're all disheartened with what's been going on in the world with COVID and how it's affected people and people have lost lives, people have gotten sick. It's affected the not only the national, but the global economy and, and then the current civil unrest going on. I mean, there's a lot of things to be um, you know, to be upset, to be worried, to be kind of out of your element. But I will say that, you know, my own view is the game of golf, and since we're golf administrators, we think that way, um, we're going to be just fine long term. In fact, it's amazing how well golf has endured here. Um, we, um, you know, if you think about it in this country, we've gotten through two world wars. We've gotten through the Spanish flu. We've gotten through the Great Depression. We've gotten through, you know, a handful of recessions that have, it, which, you know, always affect the game. and you know, it's the game. The game of golf is 600 years old, and it's it's uh, it's a game of a lifetime. It can be played from when you know, as I say, when you're young to old, professional, amateur, beginner, expert. So um, it's a wonderful game, and it, it will be just fine. Where were you, Mike, when the COVID-19 pandemic became a real thing, and when you realized that this was going to be something that was going to affect? you know, not just uh, a group of people in the Pacific Northwest. We sort of got our first rumblings about how it was going to affect us here in the United States through Washington State. And then some cases began in New York City, which is obviously very close to, to where your offices are in New Jersey. I think a lot of people, it really hit when the NBA had to, you know, call off and cancel games and then immediately it's scheduled. And then uh, after the first round of the Players' Championships in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida, the PGA Tour decides it has to cancel the players' championship, you know, the quote unquote fifth major, and all of a sudden the world was a very, very different place. At some point, you must have been sitting somewhere and realized this is going to affect our championships. This is going to affect all of golf in a pretty major way. Can you tell me when and when and where that happened for you? Yeah, Dave, it actually was at the players' championship down in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida. In fact, I can remember the particular afternoon when the players championship as you'll recall kind of went through two phases within a day of, of one another where at first they decided to conduct the championship without spectators basically rounds two through four and then a day later decided that given everything that was going on that they needed to unfortunately cancel the championship and I can remember I was sitting, I guess it would have been either Wednesday or Thursday afternoon with Jay Monahan, uh, top floor of the clubhouse that the players going through a number of things we need to talk about. But one of the issues was, you know, what would it be like to 
conduct championships at the high level without fans. And, you know, Jay and I talked and there were a couple of his senior people with us and we talked about what it would mean. Like, how, how do you conduct the U.S. Open? You know, would you have media there? How would you do it from a broadcasting standpoint? Um, are there caddies? How do you feed the players? Um, all these things that go into it. And I, I remember it well. And, and uh, we left that day. And, and literally the next day, Jay had to make a decision to unfortunately cancel. And it was, it was the right decision. But so I that's when it all started to occur. And I took a flight back to New Jersey the next day. And, and really, you could just see it start to unwind. Yeah. Um, and then shortly thereafter, we made the decision in New Jersey to really close our offices and have everybody work remotely. Yeah. One of the repercussions of many, many is that on, I believe it was May 18th, the USGA announced that the championships that you're going to be running are not going to have the normal qualification systems in place. Um, you know, speaking specifically about the US Opens and the US Women's Open, et cetera. And I would imagine based on a lot of the background that I know that you have, as well as many people at the USGA, people who have played various levels of amateur golf, in some cases, collegiate golf, et cetera. That's the qualification process and, and, and how those tournaments actually fill fields is a very, in some ways, personal thing for the people who work at the USGA. There's a soft spot um, for amateur and recreational players at the USGA. It's not just for Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy and Dustin Johnson. I mean, God, God bless. But at the same time, there had to have been some pretty interesting debates, and I'm wondering if you can share them with us about when the decision was made and what went into the decision to say, you know what, we're going to have to go with fields in our championships that will not be comprised of players who got there the normal way, that there's not going to be district and sectional qualifying for our events. What what was that conversation like and what was sort of the tenor, if you will, in the rooms when at some point it becomes obvious this is the decision we're going to have to make. We're going to have to go a totally different route. Well, I'll start out by saying it was agonizing, uh, particularly the final decision to say we're going to play four championships out of 14 this year. And, and oh, by the way, they're not going to have qualifying. Um, it, it was, you know, qualifying for us is, is really the cornerstone of our championship. We have well over 40,000 uh, entrance a year. It's part of a dream. I mean, I even think back, just you know, mentioning at the beginning of this podcast with me. I mean, I go back more than forty years ago, where I was filing entries for the U.S. Junior Amateur, then filed entries to play in qualifiers for the U.S. Amateur, and then later for the U.S. Open. And you know, there was a dream there. I never actually made it to a USJ Championship, but there was always that dream part of it. And so. As we looked at this, we looked at every angle you could possibly look at. Um, we thought about health and safety. That drove things first. Um, so um, after we did that, we thought about, you know, practically speaking, how can we possibly run 650 qualifiers around the country with, first of all, how it was, how things were we're proceeding in states and in cities were different across the globe. I mean, you had some that were open for golf. You had others you couldn't play golf. You had places where maximum it was two people per group and it could only be the members if it was a private club. Um, so it was being handled in a much 
much different way. And then, you know, the realities of it is that the USGA are not the ones that conduct these qualifiers. It's the state and regional golf associations. And yeah. we, we quickly realized that, unfortunately, there was just no way that some of them were going to be able to conduct qualifiers. And we didn't want to have a scenario whereby we're conducting, as an example, a U.S. Amateur qualifier in Georgia, but the one in New York can't be can't be conducted. We just thought that's not the right thing to do. So I look at 2020 as a one-off year. Uh, we will have qualifying in the future. It's so important. I mean, I think about our, our U.S. Open. Nearly 10,000 people try to qualify for that each year. So in some ways, it's just not going to feel the same. Um, you know, we get a great field at the U.S. Open, but there's always some great stories with that. You have some amateur sure. yeah. kids, some young kids, some club pros, you know, foreign golfers. There's always a neat story behind this. And so it, it will feel different. But listen, what drove us this year is to say, at the very least, we want to conduct what we call internally the big four, the, the men's and women's U.S. Opens and the men's and women's U.S. Amateurs. Those, listen, three of those championships have been around since 1895, oldest championships in the United States. And then uh, the women's U.S. Open have been around since 1946. It's the biggest event in women's golf. And, and so we, we really are determined um, you know, following safety protocols and following, you know, what's going to inevitably be what the states, counties and cities tell us we can do. Uh, but we're determined, you know, or as determined as we can get to conduct those, uh, those four this year. So the places where I think you're going to probably end up learning quite a bit, I mean, you're going to learn a lot before the four championships are played, working with state, local officials, et cetera, is the USAM and the US Women's Am. Well, those are actually going to be conducted before the US Open at Wingfoot. That's currently scheduled for, for September. And then the US Women's Open, which actually is in December. It's been kicked quite quite a bit further down. What are some of the things before the two amateur events that, that you're looking to learn that you you think will then apply to what we're going to see, for example, at Wingfoot? What, what are some of the procedures that will be different for those championships from years past, not just the, the, the composition of the field and, and how you, you decide who gets to compete, but from the, the running, if you will, of the tournament, the nuts and bolts of the tournament. It's going to be very different, I assume, this year. And what, what, what do you have to see? Dave, first of all, I'll start out by saying what's been so wonderful about this not-so-wonderful time we're in is that there's been terrific collaboration within the golf industry. And, and Listen, there was collaboration, if you think about it, on the elite game level of just getting together the men's and women's schedules for the rest of the year. Yeah. And as you can yeah. imagine, when we moved the U.S. Open uh, from June to September, there's ramifications not only on the PGA Tour, but the European Tour, just trying to get it on broadcast television. You're dealing with NFL. You're dealing with college football, Major League Baseball, soccer. And so... There had to be a lot of collaboration through the process. Um, I will tell you that to answer your question, we are working very closely with our friends in Ponte Vedra, Florida, the PGA Tour, and Daytona Beach at the LPGA Tour. Uh, they have been terrific to work with, and, and I know literally our team is dealing with them on a weekly basis. 
And so as we start up here shortly in June um, with, the, with the PGA Tour, there's no doubt they're going to learn things and, and we'll be all, you know, eyes and ears on what they're doing. And, and I'm, I know they will, you know, relay things that are working and aren't, aren't working. But we start out with these four championships and say, listen, we have to have health and safety for, first and foremost. We, we, and, and that, frankly, that was one of the reasons. Another reason we couldn't do the qualifying is that we just couldn't, we couldn't really Listen, there are no guarantees about safety and health here. All we're yeah. trying to do is mitigate the risk. There, you know, you're still, you walk outside, you do anything right now, and you may get the virus. So um, so as we go along, I think we were very focused. We will do testing on players, testing on officials. We'll be very careful about how things are, you know, prepared on site at the hotels where people eat. But, you know, I suspect that what we're going to see this month in June on the PGA Tour and then what we see in September at the Men's U.S. Open, listen, it could even it could eventually be different by the time we get to December for the Women's U.S. Open. I think I think that's very true. And I think that's one of yeah one, one of the advantages that the U.S. Women's Open, if there, there is such a thing as an advantage, is that, that we are now six months away and we've seen how much the world can change in six months you know if you go back six months from from where we are today on june 2nd um this this wasn't a thing quote unquote in the united states we were several weeks away from that um that also sort of leads me to the next question and i'm sorry for having interrupted you but the this year's u.s amateur abandoned dunes the remoteness of the site it's it's sort of famous in some ways among golf people not only for having wonderful golf courses at that resort. The, the Sheep Ranch just opened up and people are all abuzz about that one. Um, it, it's not easy to get to. The remoteness of it, in some ways, I'm wondering, could be an advantage for the USGA to run this championship. If you're going to make a bubble, for example, the way that the PGA Tour, having been on a call with them and spoken with them several times, the players are going to get tested, caddies are going to get tested, key personnel and tournament officials are going to be tested. And in some ways, they're almost sequestered within the tournament away from people who are not tested. So people from equipment trailers, members of the media, folks who are going to be maybe in different staffs who are not having interactions with the players that's necessary, those two parties are kept separate. The fact that if you were abandoned, it probably makes that easier, I would imagine, to do because it's as wonderful and big a ballpark as that is. It's not like you just happen to be in the neighborhood and, oh, let's go check out the USM. You meant to be there. Um, is that a fair case that that one actually might be the least affected by the, the goings on in the world that we have right now? It's a good question. I would suspect that in some ways it's going to make it easier and in some ways perhaps more difficult. I mean, you know, one of the wonderful charms, there's so many charms about band and dunes. I mean, I listen, Mike Kaiser, who was the visionary for that is a friend of, of, friend of mine for, for many, many years. I went there with Mike before it was even uh, abandoned dunes when they first started looking at it. Okay. You're the executive director of the USGA. You don't have to name drop on me like that. You've already, you've played all the courses. You don't have to name drop. That's all right, but, but please continue. <laughs> He's a great guy. And, um, you know, one of the things is it's always been hard to get to. And I suspect with COVID, it will even be harder to get to. There just won't be as many flights. And so 
the players who are playing in the 120th playing of the USAM, it's going to be, you know, part of the, the, the their charge is how do I get myself to, to band in Oregon? Once they're there, it is a, it's a spectacular site. And I do think, Dave, that it probably will be easier to, to kind of keep that bubble, so to speak, uh, just because there aren't as many places to go and stay. And um, so I think everybody will just kind of be on site, stay on site, and hopefully we have a, another historic amateur. I'm sure it's it's one of those places where if you go on a golf vacation or a golf trip, you go there because of the golf. If you go to someplace like Pinehurst, which is in my book every bit as equal in terms of its value and the greatness of the courses, the resort, there's tennis, there's equestrian stuff, there's all kinds of things to do in and around that resort. Bandon, you're there to play those wonderful courses, to enjoy the views, and then you go to sleep and repeat the next day. And and that's why it's really, I think, at a very special place um, in people's minds. Turning to the U.S. Open, if, if I understand correctly, now we've got about 50 players who are currently exempt into the field at Winged Foot. Um, Winged Foot being personally one of my favorite, it's, it's in my top two U.S. Open venues. Um, and before I get into this, because I, I will say my favorite venue, and you can maybe settle this bar bet that I've got with a, a friend of mine out in Colorado. I asked him what I thought, he asked me, I should say, what do you think Mike Davis's favorite U.S. Open venue is going to be? And I said, well... This is going to go one of two ways. Either he's going to be politically correct and not name it, which I, I'm, I'm saying that one's probably going off as, as the favorite. Or I'm thinking it's Pebble Beach. And he was thinking, well, it's got to be someplace he was thinking like Wingfoot um, or potentially Oakmont. What, before I get into my question about this year's U.S. Open and, and I end this little ramble, do you have and will you share with us what is your favorite when you take into everything into consideration? What is your favorite U.S. Open venue? You know, Dave, I guess uh, thinking about it, uh, maybe a politically correct answer is it, it's like saying which are, which are your children do you like the best? <laughs> I Listen, I think what makes our sport so unique is the fact that unlike other sports, the arena really is so significantly different. The architecture is different. The grasses are different. The aesthetics are different. Um, how the golf course plays, e even on a given day, given weather, is is so different. It's hard to say. Listen, you know, Wingfoot is wonderful. Oakmont's wonderful. Pebble Beach is wonderful. Pinehurst is wonderful. I mean, we, I could go on and on. I mean, you go back to Marion, it feels like you're going back in time. Um, and, and again, it could go on and on. They're all special in their own way. Um, I would tell you they're all they all have challenges too. Some logistically are harder. But you know, Wingfoot. I, I will say this: that I think the two venues we go to for U.S. Opens that you know, if you have to go there tomorrow and say we weren't planning to have a U.S. Open, but will you have us? Yeah. The ones that are set up day to day and it just feels like a U.S. Open are Wingfoot and Oakmont. Those two. I agree. Are plus hard golf courses and you know how those memberships play that on a, I mean, you, you simply put, you got to be a good player to be playing it. You, you got to be good or you're going to, or you're going to take up tennis. One of the two, you, you're either going to get really good or you're going to take up tennis. I'm getting a phone call here from the membership at Shinnecock Hill saying you didn't mention them, but I'll, I'll return that call later. Love, I, we love Shinnecock. <laughs> I will say this. 
I, I had an opportunity to go out to the U.S. Open Media Day. I want to say we were there about two weeks before the tournament. Most recently, it was played at Shinnecock Hills. And um, as a Golf Week course raider, it became my new number one in the United States. Um, it, it is, without question, the one of the, the greatest golf experiences that I think anybody can have. When you catch it on a day when there's just enough wind where every shot you play puts a question mark in your head. When, when the variety, the, the aesthetic beauty of it, the challenge of it, and then as soon as you walk off 18, you want to walk right over to number one and do it again, regardless of what you just shot. And that to me is the greatest compliment you can give a golf course is that it was challenging, it was fun, and I can't wait to do it again. Um, I, I want to get back in because I know that we've, we've got a couple more things I want to get into it with, with again, there are 50 players, if I'm not mistaken right now, that are in the U.S. open field through exemptions. How is the USGA going to work to try and fill out the rest of the fields? What do you think is going to be the methodology to, to give yourself the, the field size that you're looking for? So what we will do for, for both the men's and women's U.S. opens and the men's and women's U.S. amateurs is that we're looking at data on who have played in those championships before. What's the breakdown? So you take a U.S. Open and what's the percentage of PJ Tour players? How many European Tour players? How many Asian Tour players? You know, how many amateurs typically play in the U.S. Open? How many club pros? And what we very much want to do is try to replicate that look, that feel of what a U.S. Open is. We're only going to have 144 players at Wingfoot this year. Uh, we usually have 156. We're not going to say, let's just go off the official world rankings and take the top 144, because that, that wouldn't be a U.S. Open. And, and we know right. just by the name Open, it's open. Anybody that has a handicap of you know 1.4 index or less can try to qualify for it. Uh, so that's, that's the game plan. I, I think historically we have – if you look at the last 10 or so U.S. amateurs, I believe I'm right on this, upwards of 15 amateurs playing in it. And, you know, your listeners may say, amateurs, you know, that, that weakens the field. You look at how many of those amateurs make the cut in a U.S. Open, and let me tell you, they can play. So that, that's how we're going to go about it. We're just going to look and then say, what's appropriate? How many you know, how are we going to get the right number of PGA Tour players, European Tour players, club pros, amateurs in the field? And I, I've seen a few drafts of what's going on. I think John Bodenhammer that oversees our championships, he, he is leading a team that's doing some great work on that. And listen, Dave, I, I'll just share this, that whatever we come up with, um, I'm sure it won't be perfect. But, you know, you, you can you can almost make an argument that qualifying in and of itself, you're going to get some surprises. You're not necessarily going to have the 156 best players in the world, but that's not what a U.S. Open or a women's Open no. is about. Uh, so we'll, you know, I'm sure it'll be scrutinized, but at the end of the day, we'll have fields that look similar to what U.S. Open, U.S. Amateur look like. The Counter, an NFL podcast from USA Today Sports. 
featuring For the Wind's Steven Ruiz and Chris Corman. I know people are like just assuming that this is an upgrade at the quarterback position, but I don't think we could say that for a fact. I'd say it's it's a downgrade. He never really had game-to-game impact just coming off the edge and destroying people that we thought when we saw his athleticism in college and at the combine. And- the Counter, diving deeper into the NFL with advanced stats, film study, and expert guests. This is The Counter. Listen and subscribe to The Counter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So one of the things that is not going to look like what a U.S. Open or U.S. Amateur is going to look like is the number of people who are going to physically be on site. At a typical U.S. Open, depending on the venue, you can have upwards of thirty to 40,000 people on site. Some of the places just allow themselves to have a vast number of people on the property. Torrey Pines is one of those, again, big ballparks. Marion is smaller. Um, Pebble Beach feels a little bit smaller, a little bit more intimate at times, and then you go to some of the other ones. Wingfoot, you would you would imagine, because of where it is in the New York City market, um, the fact that you have two golf courses there, both amazing. If anybody who ever has a chance to go there can get out on the East course, which is usually not the, the championship venue, it is every bit as good. Uh, to me as the West, the routing for spectators is better on the West um, than it is on the East. And I think that's been one of the reasons why so many championships have now been played on or or started to be played on the West. But you're looking at now f- about 2,000 people or so, give or take, on site, if I, if I understand things correctly. A significantly smaller number of people will be on site. So when people are watching this on TV it's going to look different. And maybe to some degree with the PGA Tour starting up next week, people will start to be used to seeing golf on television with rope lines, but not a lot of spectators. In some cases, no spectators. How do you create a U.S. Open atmosphere and and create the type of event that you want when the energy that comes from the crowd and the buzz that's created when someone's making some birdies and moving up the leaderboard and, and just the energy of a sporting event in this case, can't be created because there aren't going to be fans. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. It's something we've been thinking about a lot. And I, I will tell you that we haven't determined whether there will be fans or not. There, well, Dave, there could be more than 2,000 people there. Um, the, the team really has put together three scenarios right now, one with fans, one with very limited fans, and one with no fans. And you know, to a large extent, we're, we're going to be guided by health and safety. You know, what Governor Cuomo's office is saying is acceptable. What Westchester County is saying is acceptable. And you're right. Westchester County has been and still is a, a hot spot for this. So absolutely, that's what's going to drive us. Um, you know, I, I think what's fair to say, you know, at the beginning, you know, right now, at the beginning of June, I think it's almost a guarantee that this will not be a normal-sized U.S. Open. Um, we've sold some tickets. We stopped doing that. So there's, there's, you know, thousands of tickets that have been sold out there. Whether those people are actually going to be able to use those or not, we just don't know yet. But you know, what we do know is that it's almost a guarantee that social distancing, you know, will still be a part of, of what's going on in September this year. So you, you just, you know, this is not going to be a 40,000 person U.S. Open, but it would be nice if you could at least get a few thousand people. So, I, you know, I guess this is a wait and see, but 
we've worked through all those different scenarios. And, um, it, you know, I, my guess is a, a month or so from now, we're going to have a pretty good idea of which, which scenario we're going to be under. Is there a scenario currently where, and I really, really hope this doesn't happen, but as things are improving here in the tri-state area, in, in my state of Connecticut, our number of new cases has been going down quite a bit. It's been great every morning. I get a little text on my phone from the state. And I, I check in. How am I feeling personally? It's an anonymous app, but it basically gives the state an idea of where things are going. And at the end, after I check in, and thankfully I've been able to say every day, I feel great. My family feels great. We're trying to do all the right things. It tells me how many people have been newly diagnosed and hospitalized due to COVID-19. For the last week or so, it's been, I, I want to say around 200. Whereas in weeks past, it was a thousand. It was several hundred. The number has been going down. The number has been going down also in, in New York State, specifically in the New York City area, which was obviously the hotbed. If something happens and we see numbers start to increase, is there part of the plan for the USGA to either move the US Open or to cancel the 2020 Open and say, we gave our best, but for health and safety, it's just not going to happen? Well, I will tell you, you know, a month and a half ago, absolutely. In fact, when we were collaborating with the tours, you know, the Masters was a part of it, the PGA of America with the PGA Championship, the RNA with the Open Championship. When we were going through all that, Dave, um, I will tell you, we initially had, had marked down the week before Christmas to play the Men's U.S. Open. We were literally going to do back-to-back women's men's opens and we had already uh gone and, and talked with venues out in california which is realistically probably where we would have ended up with a september excuse me a december u.s open but if we yep. did that just like the women's u.s open we would have needed two golf courses given the lack of daylight um at this point now we are we're a hundred percent wing foot and if for some reason things worsen I, I suppose we just have to cancel the U.S. Open. We, we yeah. don't anticipate that happening, but I, it's it's really getting to the point right now where trying to move to another venue. There, there's you know a lot of things that at play in that, and I think it would be very difficult. I, I think in some ways it would almost be unfair to a venue, even if you gave them notice, say it, towards the end of July. Hey, we want to do this and have it be the quality of the venue that you would want for the U.S. Open. That would be very hard from an agronomy standpoint. Um, from a play standpoint, when you think about the safety and health of the people who work at golf facilities and golf clubs, it's it's not just okay. You mentioned Oakmont, um, you know, and you mentioned Wingfoot as being places where you could hold, uh, you know, the U.S. Open tomorrow just because of the setup. Well, someone has to work there. Someone has to maintain those courses. There's there's a lot that goes into making those places oftentimes look like nature is the only thing that that's really touched the venue and touched the land. A lot of people touch the land. Um, uh, fingers crossed. I, like I said, w- Wingfoot to me is a really special place. The first major championship I ever attended was the 1997 PGA, which was won by Davis Love into the rainbow. Walt Disney was even getting weepy, you know, thinking about how, how that one was was perfect. Um, and I've had a chance to play it several times. It's a special, special place. And, and I th- I really want it to happen. I think golf coming back, hopefully with the PGA Tour next week at Colonial and all, all goes well, more events. To, to see major championships and to have a U.S. Open at Wingfoot would be a really special thing if we can make sure that everyone's safety 
the players, the volunteers, such as they'll be the officials and whatever spectators and people will be around the tournament, you know, if their safety can be ensured, that's, that's what we're looking for. Part of the, what the U S open brings to the USGA is not just the championship, but is a significant piece of revenue. And that revenue goes to support all the programs that the USGA runs and operates. A big part of the revenue comes from Fox and, and the television rights. And that, that part of it is, I would imagine, whether you're holding the tournament in its normal time over Father's Day weekend or if it's been moved, revenue is coming from there. But ticket sales, as we talked about, concession stands, merchandising things, those are all going to take a massive hit this year, even if the U.S. Open goes off without a hitch under its current date. How much will the USGA's programs be affected by the decrease in revenue from the 2020 U.S. Open? Quick answer, hopefully very little. Um, I, you know, your point is, you know, let, well, let me make the point that this one week of the year, I don't think most people realize it, but this does so much for the game of golf. I mean, we are a nonprofit. We typically bring in between 200 to $230 million a year. Our, our, our whole um, strategy is what we bring in and, and about 75% of it relates to the U.S. Open. Uh, we want to put back into the game. So if we make $225 million, we want to spend $225 million on the game of golf. That, that's different than other organizations. I mean, if you think about it, you know, most events week to week on the men's and women's tour have a charity, um, whether it's a children's hospital, you name it. In the case of the U.S. Open, the charity really is the game of golf. We're a 501c3. So, you know, the revenues, I'm always kind of amazed at people who who say, geez, look at all the money the USJ is making off it. If you love golf, you actually should root for as much money as we can make because it goes back into grow the game things. It goes back into our governance functions, turf grass research. Um so many things that if we're not doing it, who is doing it? Um, so it's a huge impact. And, you know, I will say that thankfully the USDA over the years have been very, very fiscally responsible. Um, we've got a very nice investment portfolio that if we have an off year like this, uh, we can weather the storm. We also have event cancellation insurance. So we're going to do just fine. I mean, I, I, you know, if I'm being transparent, we have tightened our belt um, just like everybody else. We're not spending as much money. We're not traveling, um, you know, and we have to be fiscally responsible. But at the same time, you know, we haven't, at least this year, changed really what we want to accomplish. I mean, COVID, you know, clearly has changed some of the tactics on, on where we want to get to strategically. But, you know, to be... I think for us, it's going to be interesting is what does 2021 look like? What's 22 look like? Um, because there's no doubt this this country's economy has been affected by COVID. The world's economy yeah. has been affected. Even if we get back to doing things, it, it's hard to imagine that 2021 is going to be as robust economy as we saw pre-COVID. I, I just I know you're thinking that. I, I agree. I think that that's one of the things that the golf industry is sort of looking at as well is it's one thing to have courses be closed for safety reasons due to COVID. Um, but with however you want to sort of count the numbers, 30, 40, 50 million people either being furloughed, laid off, 
um, you know, having their, their household incomes significantly decreased, then golf is one of those things as much as we love to play it, that if people have to watch their money, that, that they don't, you don't have to play golf. You have to buy groceries. You have to put gas in the tank. And I've talked with several people in the golf industry who were saying, you know, we, we were have, we were primed for a fantastic 20 because 19 was good. You know, rounds are played as up prices, um, at, at golf specialty stores and pro shops are being held and maintained. People are enthusiastic about it. It was an Olympic year. You know, that's been pushed back. It's a Ryder cup year. People are going to be enthusiastic about golf and they saw sales as something that they felt was going to be really good. And that's now changed and how quickly the golf consumer, the golfers will, will recover to that habit. That is more economics. That's going to be the state of the U S and the world economy, even more so down the line. Once we hopefully find a vaccine for COVID and we find that we can play safely, that's people have got to get their jobs going. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, one of the projects that the, that you and I, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, you're right. I mean, in some ways I think we've all been, uh, very pleased at how resilient golf has actually been. I mean, when you look at the numbers that the National Golf Foundation, their data on the rounds being played, I mean, April was that we are seeing remarkable numbers now. People are yeah. saying, listen, this is a way to recreate safely. People are playing. I mean, you mentioned before we got on the call about your daughter who's not a golfer wanting to go out and play. On the other hand, there are parts of it that <laughs> there's parts of it that that are hurting. Um, you know, I have some conversations on a somewhat regular basis with the CEOs of some of the equipment manufacturers, whether it's Titleist, Callaway, TaylorMade, Ping, and you know, this is hurting them. It's you know they've all had to shut down manufacturing, and and that's affected jobs, not only furloughs but some layoffs and. Yeah. So it's going to it, it will take a while to get this back right. But listen, on, on a macro basis, golf will be fine. Uh, it's going to have to adjust. It's going to be nimble. Um, there was a wonderful is a wonderful collaboration with the industry called Back to Golf. Um, you know, virtually all the big organizations are involved in it. It's being led uh, really well by the PGA of America. And, and, and I, you know, I think by that collaboration and best practices, it's made a difference. It's gotten people out. Golf courses understand how to safely open and work. So all in all, um, you know, we're hurting that parts of the game are very good. So uh, I played my first rounds about three weeks ago. We've had great weather recently, but terrible weather. And, and every time I've been to the, to the course now, it's busy. People are out. It's it's one of the great advantages our sport has over many others where social distancing, especially with me off the tee, not a problem. <laughs> I can I'm usually off someplace where other people are not aiming and and therefore there's a lot of safety to it. And and yeah, it's a great way to just to get outside and to to do things. We've all known this for ever since we picked up the game. But I think other people are are seeing it as an opportunity and and there is op more opportunity to bring more people in. So as you're saying, in the years to come, in, an, in a terrible way, if we end up getting more people to participate in, game, in the game and understand it, appreciate it, and grow to love it the way we do, I would never in a million years want it to happen this way, but maybe it is happening this way, and that's just the way it's going to work out. Before I say goodbye, and thank you one last time for coming back onto the Forward Press, you and I had a really good conversation in your office uh, back in January, which feels like worlds away. 
about the findings of the USGA and the RNA's studies, which basically determined that distance is in fact a problem, an ongoing problem in the game of golf. And it has been coming for decades. A lot of studies and a lot of different research projects were initially put on board for 2020 to, to look into different things that could potentially be thought or implemented later, much later in some cases, to combat this problem or to deal with it. Is it safe to assume that the distance initiatives and the distance studies that we had planned for 2020 have been sh you know, shuffled down and are now at some point in the future and probably are way on the back burner at this point? Well, they, uh, they are basically paused respects <coughs> right now. You know, th this, we did, along with the RNA, we did a two-year, very, very in-depth study on the effects of increased distance. It, simply put, the findings were that for well over 100 years, we have seen increasing distances. And because of that, we've seen golf courses have to lengthen, get more property, more inputs, Golf rounds are taking longer. And, and frankly, we, we looked at that and it, the data was crystal clear that we do believe long term that it's in golf's best interest and golfers' best interest to curtail that, to stop that cycle. But that said, I mean, this has been going on for over 100 years. And so, you know, our view is very long term. Our view is we have a problem we want to correct. But all along, we've wanted to do it in a collaborative, and we will do it in a collaborative way with the manufacturers, with, with the you know, professional tours, with the PGA of America, with golfers themselves, um, off-course architects, because it's in our best interest to do that. So when we came out with that study and its findings and our conclusions February of this year, we had said that roughly a month later, mid-March, we were going to put out what we called an area of interest statement. And that was really research topics that we wanted to collaboratively work with the industry to say, here are the things we want to study. Some of which are looking at golf balls and golf clubs and saying, is there a way that we can, you know, maybe modify some of the specifications to reduce distance? Uh, we, we we didn't plan on doing anything substantially, but we wanted to stop that cycle. Um, so what we really paused on is putting out that area of interest statement. And and, and we, you know, listen, we don't want to be, um, we want to be very mindful of what is going on right now. I mean, the professional tours aren't playing, the manufacturers aren't making clubs. People aren't thinking about this distance. So no. our view is let's just pause it until there's a time that the time's right. And whether that's early next year, late this year, I'm not sure. But all this has really been is a pause. This is a long-term initiative to really do something that's frankly needed to be done for years. And, uh, you know, we're, we're excited about doing the right thing for the game. And uh, stay tuned. I think it's completely understandable, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I would have been really surprised if you had told me pretty much anything different. If, In light of everything that's going on in the golf world, in the U.S., and around the world in general, um, not to belittle the work of any of the people who've worked at the USGA and the RNA, but I'm really not worried about distance right now. I, I think we've got a lot bigger fish to fry. Mike, I know you're a really busy guy. Enjoy the Outer Banks. Are you going to be playing golf anymore down there? Where, where are you pegging it up? 
Well, I played uh, Sunday and we played at a wonderfully designed Reese Jones course in called Currituck Club. It's a nice public golf course, uh, kind of built through the sand dunes. And, uh, and it was just a delightful day weather-wise and fun to do it with the family. Well, next time you're back up and you get home in New Jersey, I know it's going to be a very busy and, and odd, unique uh, summer and fall in New Jersey. Let's get a time. We'll, we'll peg it up safely, social distancing-wise. And again, it won't be a problem after I tee off. I'll, I'll send you postcards uh, on, on the tees and the greens, and we'll, we'll keep it at that. Thanks very much for coming on. Okay, Dave. Great to be with you. Hit them straight. Bye.